Welcome to another episode of the Father Ted Talk, broadcast here at the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. The 200th anniversary of Mother Seton's death is January 4th. You can watch the Seton Shrine's Feast Day Mass at 11.30 a.m. EST on EWTN. This Mass will be celebrated by Archbishop Lori, and Father Ted will be celebrating the 1.30 p.m. Mass. We will also be premiering our new short film on Mother Seton on January 4th. You can learn more at setonshrine.org slash 200 years. Now here's Father Ted. As we approach the solemn celebration of the Lord's birth, the church reminds us of a day nine months earlier when Jesus was conceived in his mother's womb. And on this day that we just heard about in today's gospel, there are two mysteries that are presented to us. We have the mystery of the incarnation, the fact that God became man and stayed God. And we also have the mystery that this did not happen without us, the mystery that God in a sense, depends upon us to save us. So the incarnation, that truth that God would save us by becoming one of us, is a mystery, and we say it's a mystery because God kept it secret for long ages, is what St. Paul tells us in the second reading. Now, when we think about the Incarnation, we usually don't imagine it to be a secret. We don't think of it as something hidden or veiled or, you know, something we're trying to keep under wraps. But it was so incredible, it was so marvelous of a mystery that God could not just reveal it at the first moment, right after the fall. It had to be, we had to be gradually prepared for it. And you might say, well, the prophets, they talk about the Incarnation. They talk about the coming of Christ. In Advent, we're always reading prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. So you have, for example, Micah talking about a ruler who will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah talks about a child will be born to us, a son is given to us. His name shall be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then Jeremiah talks about this, a new David who will come. So there are many prophecies, these are just a few, regarding the Messiah. But they do not tell us exactly who he is or what he will do in detail. They say he will come, they raise our expectations for his arrival. But there's a hidden or mysterious element to it. They don't talk about the incarnation explicitly. But there are certain indications of it in the prophecies. Looking back at that one from Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the child will be born, a son will be given, but his name is Mighty God, and he is everlasting, he is immortal. So who is he? Is he a human being or is he a divinity? And we know the answer is both now. This awe-inspiring plan of God to save us by becoming one of us has been clearly, clearly revealed to us in its fullness. And this was such an awesome event. In his book, Gift and Mystery, 
St. John Paul II calls it the greatest event to ever occur in human history. Human history is divided in two by this event that we just heard about in today's gospel. From the moment in which the angel Gabriel asked Mary on behalf of the Eternal Father if she would be the mother of his son, human history is referred to as a before and an after. B.C., before Christ, and then A.D., Annus Domini, the year of the Lord. Belief in the truth of the incarnation of the Son of God is the distinctive sign of our faith. St. John says that this is the mystery by which we can discern whether or not a spirit comes from God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. The joyous conviction of the church is that he was manifested in the flesh. That is to say that Jesus Christ, though he was God, emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. That was the first mystery. And the second mystery which is connected to this, which really springs at us from the gospel, is that we must cooperate to be saved. When it comes to us cooperating in our salvation, us doing something to save ourselves, we have to remember two basic principles. First of all, our works, what we do, all these things we do, are totally insufficient to save us. And the second principle, our works are totally indispensable in our salvation. Our first reading is a good reminder of the first of these principles, that our works are completely insufficient. We're time-traveling a thousand years back here before the Incarnation took place, and we're seeing King David firmly established upon his throne. And he's decided that he's going to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And King David has had a busy 20 years since he was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. He has slain the giant Goliath. He has led the forces of Israel against the Philistines. He evaded the envious Saul in the wilderness for many years. He ends up becoming king and uniting all Israel beneath his rule. And then he goes on to, cap to capture the capital city of Jerusalem. And once he has finally accomplished all of this, he's sitting comfortably in his palace and he realizes that the Ark of the Covenant, this precious place in which God is present to Israel, is just in a tent. So he decides to build a temple. It's as if he decides to share his prosperity and his success with the Almighty. But then, God sends a message through the prophet Nathan. Should you build me a house to dwell in? And this does not mean that the Lord does not desire a temple. He does desire a temple. And the Lord God tells David that your son, Solomon, he's going to be building me a temple. But God is reminding David that it was he, God, who was guiding and doing all these things through David. At the very beginning of this passage, we read, King David was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. 
And the Lord God continues to tell him through the prophet Nathan how basically he had done everything that David attributed to himself. It was I, the Lord God, it was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be the commander of my people Israel. I have destroyed all your enemies before you, and I will make you famous like the great ones of the earth. Perhaps David had forgotten that it was the Lord God accomplishing all these marvelous feats through him. David undoubtedly did much to establish the kingdom of Israel. His role is indispensable, we can say. His con contribution was real, but it was insufficient. He would not have done any of that if it were not for God. And in fact, it was God doing it through David. And that leads us to our second principle, that our works are indispensable. So they're not going to do it by themselves. We're not going to save ourselves, but we need to work. And this truth comes up in the gospel. Mary was asked to be the mother of God. Even though the angel Gabriel's words don't imply a question in and of themselves, the way that Mary responds to them makes it clear that she saw this as a question. She saw this as something she was going to accept or deny, decline. And it was possible for Mary to reject this invitation. She was free. We see in the gospel many people doing this. They're invited to the wedding feast of the king, and they decline the invitation. Adam and Eve did this at the very beginning of the Bible. They were invited by God to tend after the paradise, the Garden of Eden, and they declined. And Mary, at this pivotal moment of salvation history, of human history, could have also declined, saying something like, I am not worthy. But she did not insult God with an answer like that. By giving her consent, she reversed the no of Eve, and she gave God the room to undo the fall of Adam. Our cooperation is necessary. Pope Benedict XVI, he summed it up like this. He said, though it is God who takes the initiative and is always the main architect of this plan, it is also true that he does not will to carry it out without our active cooperation. Or St. John of the Cross, 500 years ago, in his classic, The Spiritual Canticle, he wrote, A person cannot practice or acquire virtues without the help of God. So, that's the first principle. You can't get virtues or practice virtues unless God is helping you. Nor, he goes on, nor does God instill them in a person without that person's help. And that's the second principle. God, his help is necessary, but so is our cooperation. And then St. John of the Cross concludes, God and the individual work together. And so we can maybe summarize this, these two principles very concisely with that phrase that is very often attributed to St. Augustine. The God who created you without you will not save you without you. Now, it's not always easy for us to keep a balance between our doing our part and letting God do his part in the work of our salvation. 
And some of us, you know, we, we tend to one end of the spectrum. We tend to be lazy. We tend to be self-absorbed, thinking, well, God is good. God's going to save me. He, he's the one who's really going to bring this about, so I don't need to do anything. He's got this covered. For these persons, the great temptation is that of presumption, presuming that God is going to do all the work and everything is going to work out just fine. And so they make no effort. They don't make any effort to build up the church. They don't make any effort to save their souls. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have those people. Some of us tend to be control freaks, thinking we have to do everything. These persons are doing a thousand things at a time. And when God's providence throws a wrench into their plans, they become discouraged, distressed, they lose their peace because their plans, everything that they need to do to save themselves, to do good, to help the world, it's not happening. And so how is it that we can keep the first group from falling into presumption and avoiding laziness? And how is it that the second group can avoid that anxiety and discouragement. And the solution for both of these groups, avoiding presumption and avoiding despair, is in a single word, hope. Hope is the virtue we practice. Hope is that virtue that was infused into us by God the day of our baptism, which disposes us to trust that with his almighty help, we will be able to reach heaven and have those means to do so. Presumption is essentially a defect, a lack of hope that leads to despair. I'm sorry, presumption is a kind of excess of hope, which makes us think that, well, God's going to be helping me, so I don't need to do anything whereas a lack of hope leads to despair and discouragement. But this is very simple. If we want to have more hope, if we want to avoid both these extremes, remembering that this virtue, it came from God. It was infused by God. It came directly from Him. And so the primary way to grow in this virtue, to become more hopeful, is for God to infuse more of it into our souls. And so everything that we do, everything that we do that is going to open ourselves up to grace is going to increase that hope within us so that we avoid the extreme of despair, we avoid the extreme of presumption, and we cooperate with God in that plan for, in His plan for our salvation. And there is no greater source of grace than the Eucharist. His body, blood, soul, and divinity is coming into us. He does not just infuse it from afar. He comes into us substantially, and from within, He increases that hope in us. And so when we come forward for the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, let us ask God to give us that increase in hope, that hope that is so tightly connected with the season of Advent, that we might always have that optimism in serving Him while also realistically playing our own part. We ask this grace through the intercession of Our Lady, who is the mother of our hope, that we might learn to hope as she did. Amen.